0: Heavenly Father, we do thank you for every part of your word. Lord, we thank you that you have preserved it over the centuries so that we can have it before us today and that it is indeed timeless, that it still has many, many principles by which we can conduct our lives today. Lord, we thank you that it is indeed a living book and it shapes our lives to be more like your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you may help us to understand its content today. We pray that you may be with me, strengthen me to be able to speak clearly. And Lord, we pray that we may indeed be edified as a result of studying your word together. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what do you do with those who have done something wrong? What do you do with those who have done the wrong thing? of course implies that you have some position of of authority. You're in some position of authority over people if you have power to do something with them. I think of those scripture kids that I teach in the local school uh, each week. Uh, Sometimes they break my rules. I have three rules uh, that they must obey. Uh, No one should be speaking when somebody else is speaking. If you wish to speak, you must put your hand up. And rule number three is no physically annoying anyone. So no poking someone, kicking someone, anything like that. If you break, One of my rules, though, I have a method of dealing with you. I put your name on the board. And once your name goes on the board, it is there for the rest of the lesson. And if you break my rule again, any of my rules again, and your name is already on the board, then you get an X next to your name. And that means you're going on detention. Thankfully, Des Primary is very supportive of its scripture teachers, and there is a particular teacher in charge of the scripture uh, teachers, and she is ruthless in making sure that the children treat scripture teachers with respect, and she is more than happy to put children on detention. She will sometimes put them on detention when I would have let them off eventually anyway, uh, but she is quite are keen to make sure that the children treat us with respect as visitors in the school. So that's how I deal with children who've done the wrong thing in my class at Scripture. I put their name on the board. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we come to this passage in Ezra. We've been slowly working through the book of Ezra. Uh, By my records, we started it five years ago, and today we actually finish our series through it. Uh, It's taken us a bit of time, but we're done today. And the thing that we're looking at this morning is the list of names that is given to us in verse 18 through to verse 44. But because it's been a few weeks since I preached on this subject, I should just give a quick recap as to what is the background of this list of names. And so basically, the book of Ezra is about the return of some Israelites after they had been in exile in Babylon. So in Israelite history, basically, the Israelites entered into the promised land under the uh, leadership of Joshua. They sinned a lot. And in time, God actually took them into exile. He um, decimated quite a few of them with an Assyrian army, then the Babylonian army, and then a lot of them were taken into exile. Then they return under the leadership of uh, a few people, including Ezra himself. And that's what the book of Ezra records, is this return of the Jews back to the promised land, the place that we would call Israel today. And while they're there, it becomes apparent that some Jews have broken God's law in marrying people who are of other races, that they have married foreign wives. And so we've been slowly working through the reaction of the Israelites to this revelation that people have been breaking God's law. And so we firstly saw many weeks ago that the reaction of Ezra. He reacted quite violently in Ezra chapter 9, verse 3. Flip with me back one page. Ezra chapter 9, verse 3. When I heard this, that's Ezra speaking about the unfaithfulness of the Israelites, I tore my tunic and cloak. Pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down, appalled. And then we see that after um, he mourns about what has happened, he then comes before God in prayer. In verse six and following, we see and and Ezra prayed, and then the prayer is actually given there in chapter nine through the end of uh, chapter nine, verse fifteen. And then we see in chapter ten. That somebody else enters into the discussion, and that's Shechaniah, that's in verse two. Shechaniah son of chapter ten, chapter ten, verse two, we read then Shechaniah son of Jehiel, one of the sons of alarm, said to Ezra Ezra, uh, What does he say? We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the people as a, peoples around us, but in spite of this there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children. And so he proposes this radical uh, solution of actually divorcing these families. So the foreign women should be sent away. And then Ezra, in verse 5, takes him up on this idea and puts the people under oath. We see in verse 5, so Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what has been suggested. So they, would, they took an oath that they would put away their foreign wives. And they took the oath there in verse it records. And then we see that in verse 7 and 8, a members meeting is called about the situation. Uh, So not just the leaders are involved, they get all the Israelites to come to Jerusalem and assemble there to deal with the situation. And at the members meeting, the assembly responds in verse 12 to the situation by saying, uh, let's do this, but uh, there's lots of people here. It's a rainy season. And so they decide that they're going to hand the whole matter over for investigation by the leaders of the community. And we read that in verse 14. At the members meeting we hear verse 14, let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time along with the elders and judges of each town until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. And so they do this and then we see that they finish investigating the matter by the end of verse 17 of chapter 10. And then we come to verse 18 and following, which appears to be this big list of names. And we have to ask, after verse 17, they've investigated the matter, what more needs to be done? What does verse 18 and following record that needs to happen now? Isn't it enough that they made this careful investigation? They've taken an oath. Uh, Ezra's prayed. Ezra's reacted violently. Isn't that enough? What needs to happen now that the officials have made a careful investigation? And so the first thing that we see happens is that the guilty are named. And that's my first main point this morning. The guilty are named. And we see that in verses 18 and following. I didn't read all the names there. I read some of the, the, um, the descendants, uh, the, the heads of the family, but I didn't read all those names out. I thought about doing it, um, but i thought it may just uh, cause problems for me and also problems for you in following me uh, along through those names. But basically we see here that the list of names is given in verses 18 down to verse 43. And so it's just like I put on the board the names of children who have been disobedient in my class. I write their names up on the board, and here we see that names are given of those who have done the wrong thing as well. And so in this list, we firstly see that the Israelites record the sin that has been committed. We see that in verse 18. Before the names are actually given, it's quite clearly put up front as to what they have done. Verse 18 reads, among the descendants of the priests, the following had married foreign women. It's very clear that these people have married foreign women. That's why they're being listed here. Not for other reason, but because they had married foreign women. And at the end of the list, it recaps that again. Verse 44, all these had married foreign women, and some of them had children by these wives. And so we see that the list of names is given there alongside the crime that they have committed, the sin that they have committed. And they're given by family groups so that they're organised, so that people can track down fairly easily which. Oh, I know many, uh, let's say, Eliezer's. Which Eliezer is it? Oh, it's Eliezer, the descendant of Haran. So it's given first name, surname, basically, is given there so you can know who is the one that has done the wrong thing. And it's interesting also, along with this record of their names next to the crime that they have committed, it also states any relevant positions that the people hold within the community. It's interesting the order by which the names are given. It's firstly that the, the descendants of Jeshua are given in verse 18. And then it, uh, and, and these, of course, oh, sorry, it's it's told to us in verse 18, at the beginning of verse 18, that these people immediately at the beginning of the list are priests. Verse 18, it says, among the descendants of the priests, the following had married foreign women. So it's up front that these are people who are actually priests who are involved in keeping the temple going and the sacrifices and making the sacrifices before God. These are priests who had actually done the wrong thing. And then the first priests that are listed in verse 18 are those from the descendants of Jeshua, son of Jozadak Who's Jeshua, son of Jozadak Well, if you know your post-exilic uh, history of the Israelite community, you know that Jeshua is actually the high priest. And so this is the high priest family. These are meant to be the priests priests of the priests. They're the the, the big guys. And yet these guys have married foreign women as well. And then it lists more descendants uh, who are priests. Um, So they're in verse 20, 21, and 22. And then verse 23 has among the Levites. Now remember, the Levites are the special people group. There's priests within the Levitical group. So the, the priests are descendants of Levi, but they have a particular function. Um, whereas the Levites have more... Um, they, they don't necessarily function as priests. And then you've got people who are from that crowd as well who are singers and gatekeepers in verse 24. So you can see that the positions of people are given in the community along with their names. So you know exactly who has done the wrong thing, particularly if they're a person in authority. Very interesting that these people weren't able to keep their names off the list. You would expect that if anybody was able to get their name off the list, if they had married a foreign wife but knew that their name was going to be published, that these guys would be able to get it off, particularly the high priest family. But here we see that the people of God are making very clear that even those who are powerful in the community who have done the wrong thing are being recorded on this list. Now, you may say, why why bother? Why should the guilty be named? Why do they go to this effort, particularly that these people have been recorded for millennia now, come down to us today, and we can say, "Okay, these people did this crime many millennia ago. Why bother making this list and publishing it? Well, it doesn't take much uh, thinking about this to work out that basically, Naming people for when they've done the wrong thing, uh, one of the first functions of that is that it shames the guilty party. Why do I name the kids in my class up on the board? It shames them. They recognise then everybody can see up on the board their name and it should give them a sense of shame for what they have done. Also, putting a list like this together vindicates the innocent. So if your name's not on the board and The teacher, like when I'm the scripture teacher, sometimes the teacher will wander in the room. If they look at the board and they see names there, they know that if other kids haven't got their name up there, that they're innocent, that the guilty ones are the ones that have their names on the board. And so it may be that people were suspected of marrying foreign wives, but once they made the careful investigation, the officials made the careful investigation, it was found that they hadn't. And so their name is not there on the list. Why was a careful investigation needed? Because it was a bit of a tricky situation. And so it may be that people were suspecting, some people, of marrying foreign wives, but in reality they hadn't transgressed against God's law. And so their names are not there. So in one one function of the list is to shame the guilty. Another function of the list is to vindicate the innocent. And I think this is something that, a principle that we should take today in our function as Christians as well. We should take a similar approach in our church when someone is caught in serious sin. Now, remembering this is serious sin. It's a serious violation of God's law uh, for the Israelites to marry someone of a foreign nation. And we've discussed that in great detail in previous weeks. If you want to know my thoughts on that, you can listen to the recordings. Um, This is a serious sin. And in our church, We actually have reserved the right in our Constitution, which members uh, abide by when they become a member of the Church, the right to name people when they fall into serious sin and name the sin that they have committed. In our Constitution, we have written that the elders may report to the congregation the names of those who they believe should lose membership by reason of Church discipline and the reason for that discipline, as described in Matthew 18... 15 to verse 20 we believe that the new testament encourages us to tell one another when someone is caught in a serious sin to name someone as and and say what they're doing that is wrong and then why they should be disciplined accordingly why do we do that well because jesus tells us to in matthew chapter 18 verse 15 as uh said there in our constitution reference in our constitution that text says that if your brother sins against you Go and show him his fault just between the two of you. So if someone sins against you, or you recognise they've done the wrong thing, then go and see them personally. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over and you don't need to go any further. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So if your brother's not recognising that he's done a serious sin and he says, "Nah, that's just your opinion, I don't think it's that big a problem, then get two or three others, take them along and help and they should then testify, yes, what you're doing is wrong. Then, if they refuse to listen to them, verse 17 says, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church, the matter that is going on, who it is and what they've done. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That is what our Lord instructs us to do. You may say, well, it sounds a bit harsh. I mean, remember, They've recorded these names for millennia. Really should we be doing that today? Should we be saying telling people, everybody in the church, when someone does something wrong, maybe serious, but yeah, should we really be breaching people's privacy? Isn't that what we're doing? By telling everybody that someone's fallen into serious sin? Well we do it because we've got good reason. I don't well we do it because Jesus instructs us to, but we also do it because we can see good reason for doing so. And in our Constitution, we actually outline how discipline takes place. We say that we, um, as members, agree that uh, we should tell one another if someone falls into serious sin, but we also give reasons why we do it. And so in our Constitution, we've written that the purpose of such discipline should be for the repentance, reconciliation and spiritual growth of the individual disciplined. Just like this list of names here hopefully got these members of the Israelite community to turn from their sin and to do right, that's why we do what we do where we publish people's names and we say that this person's fallen into sin and they should lose their membership. We do it so that that person will turn from their sin. If they can keep it private, then they're more likely to never turn from that sin. But if it becomes a public knowledge, if it becomes public knowledge what they've done, then hopefully they come to repentance, reconciliation, and spiritually grow, just like my kids in the the classroom. I want them to be shamed so that they do the right thing. And we also have purposes of search discipline. It's not just to shame them so that they come to repentance. We also have in our constitution written, for the instruction in righteousness and good of other Christians as an example to them. When we name serious sin it's an instruction and example to other Christians that this is what we expect believers uh, this is not what we expect believers to do and then we have another reason for the purity of the church as a whole we need to keep the church pure for the good of our corporate witness to non-Christians it's terrible if a church is known for harboring people and condoning their behavior when even unbelievers wouldn't do what some people in a church are doing And so it actually brings into uh, our corporate witness to non-Christians into disrepute. We don't have as effective a witness because they say, oh, that church, they condone anything there. And then a fifth reason that we give, and this is the, the supreme reason, and that's why we've called it, supremely for the glory of God by reflecting his holy character ultimately that's why the list is there to name and shame these people is to say look these people have done the wrong thing and they're not keeping in the character of God and so we're actually trying to keep God's name from being tainted by the sin of these people we're saying this is not what God stands for God is a holy God and so that's why we name and shame people when they fall into serious sin. And so that's what we do in our church, and it's written into our constitution. If you become a member of the church, you submit to our constitution, and you submit to the fact that someday you may fall into serious sin, and we will hold you accountable for that. We'll actually tell everybody. If you won't recognize that what you're doing is wrong, we'll tell everybody and tell them what you're doing so that you may be disciplined as a result and be removed from membership. And this goes for, and we should follow the example of the Israelites in doing this, in that we should do it to everybody, no matter how powerful they may be in the church. Remember, this list lists people who are priests from the high priest family who serve as singers or gatekeepers or Levites in the community. There's no exemptions. And that means that if I, your pastor, or one of your other elders, falls into serious sin, it's, it should never be that it is hushed up. So many churches have been seriously damaged by pastors hushing up their own personal immorality and trying to keep it from being broadcast to the members because they know that they'll then be removed from, mem- from membership and from that church. And they continue in that position and cause further and further damage by not being disciplined appropriately. And that's why I love this church, that I know that the people here will hold me to account for my actions. I'm a sinner and I don't know what the future will bring. I don't know if I might fall into some serious sin and I love the thought that if I fall into sin that I'm blinded to my own sin that the people of Des Moines Baptist will publish my name to the other members to try and awaken me from the fact that what I'm doing is wrong. Shame me in my sin so that I awaken and I may not be the pastor of the church anymore depending on what sort of sin it is but hopefully I'll still be a member of the kingdom because I'll come to repentance I'll be shamed and recognise that what I'm doing is wrong. So here in Ezra chapter 10, verse 18, we see that firstly what needs to happen after the investigation is made of this matter is that people need to be named and shamed. What else needs to happen? What else happens in these verses? Well, that brings me to my second main point this morning. The guilty take action. The guilty take action. Just like in my, with my scripture kids, I expect when they've been named and shamed on the board, as I said before, I expect them then to take action. I expect them to behave themselves from then on. And it is very rare that I get an X next to any child's name. They only get two two strikes in my classes. They get their name on the board, and then they break the rule again, they get an X next to their name. And then they're on detention. It's very rare that any child ends up on detention in my classes. That's because they're all such wonderful children, isn't it? But no, well, yes, they are very wonderful, actually. But uh, the, it rarely happens because as soon as you put that name on the board, generally their head goes down and they don't speak for the rest of the lesson. Which shows they have taken action to reform their ways. And that's what's happening with the Israelites here. We see that they're named and shamed, but we also see that they take action to reform their ways. What do we see happens in verse 19? Verse 19. Of Ezra chapter 10. It lists these descendants of Jeshua and then it says they all gave their hands in pledge to put away their wives and for their guilt they each presented a ram from the flock as a guilt offering. What do they do? They reform their ways. What was their way before? It was marrying foreign women. What's their way now? Well they're actually going to the extent where they're putting away their wives. They're actually causing divorces in their families to stop sinning in this regard. And it's not just the, uh, the high priest family that does this. Uh, although it's noted specifically for them in verse 19, but also in verse 44, uh, it doesn't say it explicitly in verse 44 in our translations here. It says, in verse 44, all these, that's the Israelites, had married foreign women, and some of them had children by these wives. It doesn't say that they put them away, unless you go to a textual variant in the margin of the Bible there. If you've got an NIV Bible uh, in your pew there, uh, if you follow the little letter B down to the margin it says in verse 44 or another uh, possibility is that the verse is meant to read and they sent them away with their children now this verse verse 44 is a bit tricky to translate and uh, and basically that line and sent them away with their children comes from another another writing about this incident and uh, and so some people would suggest that that is actually part of the original uh, it's just been overlooked in a copy at one point and has, been, has dropped out of the uh, text that we generally get our Hebrew Old Testament translations from. And so it's possible then that we have explicitly stated here that they sent away their foreign wives as well. But remember, the whole, the whole uh, community took an oath previously to take this action to reform their ways and send away their wives so it's very 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 likely particularly once you've got this textual variant in place as well that the rest of the Israelite community did this as well not just the priests as stated in verse 19. So we see here that the Israelites sent away their wives they reformed their ways and that should happen today as well when we fall into serious sin. It's not good enough to simply say, I acknowledge my sin, I did the wrong thing, I'm okay now. No, we need to reform our ways. The reason you are named is so that repentance may come about and repentance is a turning from sin to do what is right. And so if you've fallen into serious sin, it shouldn't be that somehow you pay for your sin by just having your name put out there with the sin and you continue in it. No, it should be with the expectation that you turn from your sin. And that's what we should expect from people in our community at Dremoyne Baptist Church, is that we name them, as it says in our constitution, with the purpose of that they'll be brought to repentance, that they'll change their ways. And so if you recognise that there's a sin in your life, you need to name it, name that you are a sinner, that you've committed this sin, and then turn from that sin. You need to repent. The New Testament tells us again and again. You need to repent from your sin. It's not enough to say, yes, I'm a sinner. And that's it. You've got to turn from that sin. And that's what we see the Israelites doing here, and that's what we need to do today. Is that it? Is that all that needs to happen? Once you find a particular sin, it needs to be publicly declared or at least to yourself if it's a personal sin that's not too serious you recognise it as sin you need to recognize that it's there and turn from it is there anything else that you need to do is there anything else that the Israelites did in response to this careful investigation made into this matter well we see that they they do something else as well in this text as well or at least the priests do and we see that they the guilty make atonement the guilty make atonement and that's my third main point this morning the guilty make atonement now in my scripture classes I put names on the board and then it is possible for them my children to atone for their transgression if they don't break any of my rules throughout the lesson well the name stays there but if they actually start to participate in the class if they start to particularly give good answers, I always end my classes with a quiz. And not all kids have to take part in the quiz. Usually you've got the eager beavers and that's pretty much it. Some of them keep their heads low uh, through the quiz. Um, but if a child has their name on the board and they give an answer in the quiz, then I happily remove an X next to their name and their, other na- and their name will just stay there. Or if they've got just their name on the board, I'll remove their name from the board. I don't always do it. And sometimes they remind me if they answer in the quiz and they say, you didn't take my name off the board. I say, well, I'm I'm not sure I'm going to do that today. It's all a matter of my graciousness at the time. But they can atone for their transgression. And that's what we see happens with the Israelites. They make an acknowledgement that they have sinned. We have a list of their names. They also reform their ways by trying to make up for it and doing the right thing from now on. But we see that they also recognize that they must make atonement for their transgression. And we see that in verse 19. Verse 19, Ezra 10 says, They all gave their hands in pledge to put away their wives. And for their guilt, they each presented a ram from the flock as a guilt offering. Here we see the priests making a guilt offering because they recognise that they've done the wrong thing. It's not enough to send away our wives. We have to make up for that crime that we previously committed. It's interesting that it's only the priests who are listed here as making a guilt offering. Uh, People try and propose different solutions as to why the rest of the Israelites are not recorded as making that uh, guilt offering as well. It may be that the priests do it on behalf of the whole community. Remember, this is the high priest family. And so when they present the offering, they may be doing it on behalf of the whole community. Um, it may be that they set an example for the others to follow and the others actually followed it but it's not recorded that they did so. The Bible doesn't record everything that the Israelites did it's only got so much space there the Israelites have been around for a long time uh, so it doesn't record everything that they did but it's very interesting that in this passage there is mention of sacrifice there's we've had all this uh, material about what happens once they first find out about the sin. Ezra tears his hair, tears his clothes prays, fasts, puts people under oath, make careful investigation. No sacrifice is mentioned all through that. But here in verse 19, after they've investigated the matter, they've named and shamed the people, they've reformed their ways, they've changed the way they were doing things before, there's mention of a sacrifice. And this makes sense. We recognise that if you do something wrong, if you're a criminal and you live a life of crime, and then you suddenly reform your ways. You, you no longer break into people's houses. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't be punished for all the times you broke into people's houses. You, if you do the wrong thing, then you deserve to be punished. Yes, it's wonderful that you've turned from a life of crime, but you still need to be punished for when you broke, broke the law of this country. When you break the law, you deserve to be punished. Now, it may reduce your sentence down if you can demonstrate that you've you've reformed your ways. But restitution still needs to be made. There is guilt on you, and you need to be punished accordingly. And it's the same for us today as well. Just because we recognise that there's sin in our life and we may be named and shamed, and then we reform our ways, we stop sinning, that doesn't make up for the sin that we've done in the past. Yes, we've repented, but we still have guilt to our name so how do we pay for that guilt we should be punished for it and that's where the bible tells us that we will be punished for eternity in hell for what we've done wrong unless a sacrifice can be offered in our place unless a guilt offering is possible and the wonderful truth of the bible is that a guilt offering is possible not a ram from the flock as the Israelites offered there, but the precious blood of Jesus Christ, God's only son. Yes, we should name and shame our sin. Yes, we should repent of our sin and turn from it. But we should also believe that Jesus Christ paid for our sins, that the guilt of for our sins has been washed away through Jesus Christ. And that's what that passage that we read from 1 John before talks about. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, where the Apostle John says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. I don't want you to sin, he says. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Who's that? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Why? because he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours but also for the sins of the whole world that's a wonderful text that verse 2 what is being said there is translated as the atoning sacrifice it's uh, the original word is translated by an English word that's fallen into disuse now propitiation That he is a propitiatory sacrifice. What does propitiation mean? It's a word to describe a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. God is angry towards us for our sin. And you see Ezra knows that back in chapter 9 by his prayer and by the Israelites. They're always talking about our guilt. And even back there in verse uh, 14 what do they say in verse 14? The whole assembly is speaking at their members meeting. It says, let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time along with the elders and judges of each town until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. They know that God is fiercely angry about this because they've transgressed his law. And we know that God is fiercely angry against us because. Of our transgressions against his law not necessarily marrying foreign women and remembering that the whole concept today I've dealt with in previous weeks that, um, that we can marry people of other nations, it's about marrying people who don't believe in our God, that's the issue and divorcing, we've covered that in previous weeks as well, that Israelite's uh, example here is not one that we should necessarily follow today either but we should remember that our sin today not in marrying foreign women but in many other ways in not loving those around us has aroused the fierce anger of God. But there is a propitiation. There is a sacrifice that takes the wrath of God. And who is that? That's Jesus Christ. And he is received by faith in him. If we trust that Jesus Christ died for us, then God is no longer fiercely angry with us. He's our Father who loves us and our sin is washed away. So have you gone through the process described here in Ezra chapter 10 in your own life with your own sin? Maybe not in the public way here that your name has been published as a great sinner but in all accounts we probably should have that. We should recognize that we're all great sinners but have you recognized that you're guilty of sin? Have you named yourself as a sinner? We all deserve to be on a dishonor roll. Have you then repented by taking action and reforming your behaviour in seeking to sin no more? And most importantly, have you accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as a guilt offering for your sin? And then are you ready to go through this process with others? Maybe even in a very public way, as we've outlined in our Constitution. But thankfully, we don't have to do that very often. Thankfully, most of the time, if one person or two people go to someone and say, look, what you're doing is wrong, the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work in our church and that person usually reforms their ways and there's nothing else that needs to happen. But are you ready to even go to the point where you publicly declare to others about what has happened so that they'll be brought to repentance, so that God's glory, so that God may be glorified, his glory may not be tainted, by the sin of this church. Are you ready to do that? Even though it may seem really harsh, you recognise that's what you're called to do. And it's actually for your good, for the good of those around us, and for the good, uh, the, the good name of God to be honoured. Are you ready to do that? Let us come before our God in prayer. Let us speak with Him. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this part of your word that is rather obscure. Uh, with many names uh, which we couldn't even begin to pronounce. But, Lord, we thank you that there are still vital lessons for us here. There's a lesson that we should name sin for what it is and we should recognise that we are sinners. We should also take from this part of your word that we need to reform our ways. It's not good enough to simply acknowledge our sin, but we must be willing to turn from it and not harbour it any longer. But Lord, we do also see in this part of your word that guilt offering must be made for sin, but we also thank you that we have the New Testament, and there it proclaims that marvellous guilt offering of your Son, which does indeed satisfy your wrath. That if we sin, there is one who intercedes on our behalf—Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. So, Lord, we pray that we in this room may be willing to admit we are sinners, Repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ's sacrifice for us. And Lord, we pray that we may be willing at times to put other people through this process so that they too may share eternal life with us. Even though it may be very hard and difficult to do, Lord, we pray that we may do it for their sake and most importantly, for your name's sake. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.